Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about what else? Epic versus Apple. If you have been following this series over on Virtual Legality, you know that we're up to 35 videos. And we just yesterday talked about the opening statements and opening couple of days of the trial that is now underway between these two technological giants. So if you are interested in some of the baseline principles, the complaints, the actual legalese that goes into this entire litigation, I highly recommend checking out the playlist or the earlier video because from here, we're gonna talk about both the end of day two and some of the most important testimony from what is presently presented on day three. Now, I am on the East Coast. I'm not on the West Coast. So much of this video series is going to be doing things a bit in parts from what has actually been testified to when I make these videos towards the end of my day here on the East Coast and what is testified to after this video is made and then summarized by very, very good reporters at places like The Verge and GameSpot and many other outlets that are doing a great job in helping to summarize some of the big things that are coming out of this trial and are helping folks like me here at Virtual Legality summarize them and analyze them from a legal perspective for you. With that all being said, let's take a look at what the summary of day two was from The Verge because, as we mentioned in yesterday's video, we actually had to opt out at about 6 p.m. and the trial was getting close to finishing up at that point in time. And if you actually go look at this article, and I highly recommend that you do, more perspectives is always better on something like this, a, a trial as significant as this one. You'll see that we mostly covered everything that we needed to cover as of yesterday. One of the big things that The Verge comes out with towards the end of their article, however, is this notion of friction, that the witnesses they saw testify, including Mr. Sweeney, were pointing out how difficult it is to actually get folks to go, not from your app where they have to purchase something and pay Apple the 30% cut that is at the heart of the issues in this case, but to get them to go out to Safari, to their web browser, especially when you can't tell them that they can do that from the app itself and whether or not the prohibition on being able to tell people that they can do that is something that should be prohibited in a court of law under antitrust law in the United States. Now, as I said, I think we've mostly covered the substance of this in yesterday's video, but please do check it out. On the GameSpot side, who's doing a rolling update of some of the major things that are coming out of this trial, they do updates between the trial dates. And I thought these were pretty interesting. They found that Sweeney says Sony's stance on cross-play could be illegal. And in terms of their reference here, the documents itself were highlighted by Tom Warren on his Twitter page, and they go a little bit like this. Friday, June 1st, 2018, from Tim Sweeney to Phil Rosenberg at Sony. Dear Phil, Sony's interoperability restrictions have put both of our companies in an untenable position adversarial to our customers. Many Fortnite players are kids, and their friendships are being torn apart by Sony's segregation of players, on competing platforms. Let's stop right there for just a second. If you remember from yesterday's video, one of the kind of side street conversations that happened as part of the testimony from Mr. Sweeney yesterday was the judge asking if the audience for Fortnite was primarily made up of kids. And if so, wasn't a little friction in spending money a good thing? In yesterday's video, I talked about how I'm not really that comfortable with the court system trying to adjudicate an equitable question of whether or not there are antitrust violations based solely on the demographics of the product that you've created. But it's worth noting from a philosophical perspective that the judge is interested in this, that the judge is read up 
on the conversations about loot boxes and gambling and addiction and frictionless free-to-play games and is at least presenting as somewhat concerned about the prospect that Epic wants to make it as friction-free as possible. So having a letter go into evidence and be a part of this conversation that Tim Sweeney himself is going out to Sony and saying, many of our players are kids and you need to give us this cross-play functionality because otherwise their friendships are being torn apart. Once again, displaying kind of the righteousness and the very melodramatic tone in which Tim Sweeney makes these kinds of comments could play in a certain way that isn't great for Epic in the court. We don't know because this is really about Sony and the deals that we talked about in our crossplay video and we've talked about yesterday. Frankly, Epic continues, we do not believe Sony's position is even legal. Sony's position to not allow crossplay slash maybe Sony's position to ask for money, a revenue share in respect of crossplay. Hard to say what the position is that's being referenced here. Please see the attached analysis prepared by our European Council in the context of EU law, including, importantly, GDPR data portability mandates with direct bearing on cross-play and cross-purchase. We've also reviewed privileged analyses of follow-on implications in major jurisdictions of any punitive actions Sony might take to enforce this policy. Perhaps Sony had not previously considered all of the implications of the GDPR legislation and of Sony's growing market position. We urge you to please do so now and to please reconsider whether there is some amicable way that we can open up Fortnite together in a partnership benefiting all. Now, we can see after viewing a number of these emails from Tim Sweeney, either to Xbox or to Sony or to other players in the industry, that this is the tack that Epic tends to take or appears to take, at least when they're conversing with prospective business partners. There is an underlying tenor of bullying, of threats, of saying, look, Sony, you're tearing families apart. Oh, and by the way, we've analyzed this and we think you're acting illegally. Then you go for the carrot. We believe that Fortnite esports collaboration on PlayStation will bring such enormous momentum and excitement to the Sony brand and player base that it will far outweigh any perceived negatives. Many of the most valuable companies in the world are those in the business of connecting people together socially. As the leading gaming brand, Sony is in the position to capitalize on Metcalf's law economics more than any other. The law of increasing returns for network effects and large-sized economics. Epic is flexible on the structure of esports competitions involving PlayStation. We simply proposed what we think will be the most inclusive and successful. If Sony's desire were for PlayStation to comprise a separate league in major esports competitions and not to be mixed with Switch and Xbox in those high-profile events, we'd happily accommodate that, provided we can agree on general game interoperability across platforms. Again, we saw this yesterday. Tim Sweeney, Epic Games, trying to sweeten the pot, trying to get Sony to come to the table to talk about crossplay, offering things like E3 partnerships. Here we see reference to esports competitions, all in an effort to get that crossplay because, and I think Epic's right about this, the value proposition of their product is enhanced by having all groups of players able to play amongst one another because that larger size in economics makes their product more attractive. Ultimately, Mr. Sweeney continues, taking away the carrot and going back to the stick. Though we love Sony, we love our customers more. Please inform Kadera-san, and please be clear, that Epic will enable full interoperability between all platforms in Fortnite at a timely point in the future. Okay, so this stick's a bigger one. Hey, we think you're acting illegally. Please look into punitive stuff. We'd love to set up an esports thing with you. Have a little carrot. And then, oh, by the way, regardless of how this email goes, we're doing this. So get ready because if we do it and you decide to fight it, 
Please understand that Epic firmly believes that this action is a matter of legal right and moral duty. Moral duty. And that I am conveying this to you following extensive deliberation and legal analysis across several continents with Epic's board members and major investors, and that we are prepared to pursue this course with all available resources wherever it leads us and for however long. Let me decode that for you. That's why you're here in virtual legality. You get in our way, we're going to sue you. That's Tim Sweeney. That's what he's saying right here. We believe it's our legal right and we are prepared to pursue this course with all available resources. Get ready. Don't try to stop us. And then Sony goes back and evaluates whatever it is that they evaluate. They come up with their cross-revenue share, whatever it is. But this is Epic saying, we are going to do this. The previous part of this email says, we're going to do it. This says, if you try to stop us, we're going to sue you. We urge Sony to find a way to enable this in a positive partnership and to join Apple, Google, Microsoft, and Nintendo as stewards of platforms, enabling all customers to play together with all of their friends. Best regards, Tim Sweeney. And look, big business is big business. You are not at the level of Tim Sweeney or Tim Cook or any of the other people involved in these various conversations if you don't have a certain amount of sharp elbows and you aren't willing to get down there and fight for what you think is appropriate for your company. I don't begrudge Epic this. I don't begrudge Tim Sweeney this, except for maybe some of the self-righteousness, the separation of kids and friendships and their moral duty to provide Fortnite to a combined audience. Come on now, it's business. We can be hard-edged, we can talk about money, but we are in fact talking about money. Moral duties really don't come into it, but this is the way that Epic operates. And I have to say, it's not a partnership that I would particularly love to have were I running one of these giant companies and had to deal with this kind of threat, benefit, threat, we're gonna sue you if you try to stop us type language because as we can see now, Tim Sweeney and Epic Games has demonstrated that they're a bit of a wild card in the industry. They worked with Apple. They were on Apple's stage helping present what the iPhone could do, even though Tim Cook, as we saw in some articles yesterday, didn't recognize him when Tim Sweeney asked for them to open up their ecosystem and asked, is this the guy I saw in rehearsals? Very interesting. Always fun to see the context of behind the scenes of these major media figures in the tech industry and any other industry. Really? but that Epic is fully willing to make you, as a partner, spend millions, if not tens of millions, defending yourself from a brand new case. And at bare minimum, you have to take them seriously because they're fighting Apple on somewhat specious grounds, a very difficult case at minimum. And so when they send you an email like this, you have to take it seriously. Your counsel has to analyze it because Epic might just sue for the heck of it. They've got a lot of Fortnite money. They've got a lot that they could win if they win that lawsuit. And now you have to take it even more seriously, which is a part of this story. Epic acting a little crazy and willing to spend tens of million dollars on lawyers and make you spend those tens of millions of dollars on lawyers is a part of the pose that they have struck here with the industry and parties in general. The other kind of component to this, as we talked about yesterday, is that a lot of the information from these third parties that are not directly involved in this suit is getting leaked out. And whoever's responsible for that, I tend to chalk it up to incompetence and accidental disclosures, is not happy about what's happening here. You saw dozens of motions to the judge to have things redacted and otherwise struck and sealed and all these various things. A lot of these horses are out of the barn and the judge is saying, no, I can't do that. But you're getting motions every day from these third parties to redact information. They're not pleased with what's happening here. And while it's a great boon to those of us like me and you who is watching virtual legality to have this conversation with knowledge of what's happening in the industry behind the scenes, 
It's not great for the trade secrets and financial information of all these parties that don't want this out there. That is actually something of value that is out there because Tim Sweeney and company decided to pick a fight with Apple, a fight that they have, in my opinion, a less than 50% chance of winning. And now Xbox is paying the price and Sony is paying the price and others are paying the price for this information coming out here. And we're only on day three. With that as our segue, let's talk about day three. And we are again looking at Addie Robertson of The Verges, Twitter thread on this, live tweeting some of these exchanges. As I said yesterday, we're not going to be able to cover everything in this thread. And this thread doesn't cover everything that was said over hours and hours of testimony. So please do check out other sources as well as Virtual Legality to get a holistic feel for what's happening in this litigation. But I did pluck out, oh, it looks like about 15 different quotes from this thread that I'm going to talk about from a legal perspective because I think it is fascinating. Why? Well, because as I said in the thumbnail, today was the day that Xbox and Microsoft first made its appearance. Or as Addie Robertson says, back just in time to hear Lori Wright of Xbox for Apple slash Epic, apparently. I'll be live tweeting the rest of the day thanks to Tom Warren for the assist. Now on the picture on the thumbnail, you see uh, Ms. Lori Wright of Xbox uh, who did testify today at length This is the testimony we're primarily going to be looking at uh, because some of the later testimonies hadn't started yet when we made this video. And we will, of course, check up on them in our next update on Epic versus Apple. But that's Lori Wright. Wright is vice president of Xbox business development at Microsoft, confirms that she does have an understanding of the console and Xbox store business, although she doesn't directly oversee it. So somewhat tangential to the kind of main testimony that we got from Tim Sweeney yesterday, but still very important. And very important for a number of reasons. First, there is a little bit of hedging from Ms. Wright. And it's pretty clear that Microsoft is trying to help backstop Epic's position, which is something that they're called on by the Apple attorneys in today's testimony, but that they're unwilling to commit to. Addie Robertson says, Wright's going through a line of questioning meant to establish the Xbox as not a competitor to a smartphone. You have to plug it into a TV, etc." We certainly don't view the iPhone as a competing device. We do not see the iPad as a competing device, Wright says. Now, if that strikes you as a little bit odd, then congratulations. You've been following Microsoft's discourse for the better part of a decade now. Or as we can see in an interview with Game Industry Biz of Phil Spencer from, I believe it's 2012. uh, Yes, 3rd July 2012, so associated with E3. They posed the question, What is your general reaction to your competitors this year? Nintendo was showing off the Wii U while Sony was showing Last of Us, Beyond, etc. What was your overall thinking on these two camps? To which Phil Spencer responds, Well, I think, to not not answer your question, it is worth noting that there is another competitor that is not here, that has a developer's conference next week. This is self-prompted. This is Phil Spencer of Xbox making this statement really all on his own. To which Game Industry Biz asks, Apple? Question mark. And so he says, Right. So if we think about where our ambition is, our ambition is to create an entertainment platform for everyone on the planet. We think there are a couple of keys, having unique content. We started off with Halo, but we obviously have a breadth of content from big core games to things like the Nike Fitness Program, to things like Dance Central, our sports offerings. Certainly in 2012, you're looking at going into 2013 with TV, 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 and having the Xbox positioned as a more general applicability system that sits under your TV and does all these various things. Microsoft has been invested in competing with all forms of media since as long as I've been following them. That was the idea of the Microsoft set-top box under the television. So you look at an answer like this, 
And this is under oath. This is testimony to a court. I'm not trying to impugn Ms. Wright. I'm sure she's not lying or not lying deliberately when she says she doesn't view the iPhone as a a competing device. You can say, hey, we blow them away on what we do and they're not a competitor, even though Phil Spencer might think they are a competitor nine years ago. It's not the case. But it continues along this vein that's really kind of funny. Does the Xbox store compete for transactions with the Apple App Store? Lawyer says, no. Wright says. Of course, when we looked at Sony dealing with cross-play and cross-functionality for Fortnite, one of the major questions they had was if people play their games on the PlayStation and otherwise buy their V-Bucks on a different platform, then that's going to be a problem for us. We saw a similar concept actually presented by Xbox and Phil Spencer in their email exchange that said, don't change prices on us because we can get burned if people buy things on different platforms and play their games over on the Xbox. So, the games folks, and Lori Wright isn't the games folks, so that's that's okay. We get that. The games folks look at it and say, yeah, absolutely. We're trying to compete on entertainment. We're trying to p- compete across platforms. We can get burned if somebody goes and buys all their stuff through the iPhone and then plays all of it on the PlayStation. And we know this about the entertainment industry. We do. Netflix famously went out a couple of years ago and said, we're not just competing with HBO or Hulu or what have you. We're competing with Fortnite. Entertainment time is entertainment time. And if I'm running Xbox, I'm competing with players playing Fortnite in front of their TV and players playing Fortnite on their phones in front of their dinner table. All of this is not easily separated. But the purpose of this from a legal perspective is that Epic is trying to establish that the Xbox and the iPhone and the iPad, the iOS ecosystem, do not directly compete. Why? Because as we've talked about in this space, the most important first threshold question that Epic has to win in order to even get to the other questions in this case is that Apple is a monopolistic provider of access to its operating system and that that is a relevant market under the law when relevant market is defined to be something that is exclusive of other competitive opportunities. And Apple wants to say, well, you can play Fortnite on your Xbox, you can play it on your Sony, you can play it on your Switch, you can play it on your computer, you can access that particular product anywhere. There are competition avenues to what we put on the iPhone. And so the proper market judge isn't access to the iOS, which is self-evidently monopolistic, just like anybody's hardware is, but it's actually games. Or maybe even more broadly, it's applications of all kinds, software of all kinds. So Epic brings up Ms. Wright here to say the Xbox is different. We don't view it as a competitor, but at least to me, this rings as disingenuous, not false, not lying. We're not accusing anybody of perjury here, but perhaps not as reflective of the modern market landscape as it could be, which is Epic's right. Epic to bring up witnesses that will say things that hopefully bolster its case. And they do, but they do also get easily called into question which is what Apple wound up doing today. The other thing that came out of this testimony that I thought was really interesting was a bit about the business model, right? We talked about this yesterday. We talked about this in previous episodes of Virtual Legality. But one of the things that the judge was clearly expressed concern about is that Epic saying, hey, if you own an operating system and you control access to that and you control access to the hardware, then you're a monopolistic provider of that hardware access. You need to be broken up somehow. The court needs to come in and say you can't control that access that that will affect a large amount of other industry participants. Places like the Xbox, the Sony PlayStation, the Nintendo Switch, if not more hardware outside of the video game industry. And Epic has consistently said, well, it's different, Your Honor, because 
The business model for hardware sales in the console space is different from hardware sales on the phone space. You make a profit when you sell a phone and the rest is icing versus the Microsoft Xbox or the Sony PlayStation where you apparently sell it at a loss, you lose that money and you make it back over time in subscription fees for things like Game Pass or in your 30% cut of things like digital or physical video game sales. So Addy Robertson says here as part of the testimony, if Microsoft sells consoles at a loss, why does it keep selling them? The lawyer asks, because the business model is set up to deliver an end-to-end consumer experience and they make money in the long run over sales and subscriptions. Has Microsoft ever earned a profit on the sale of an Xbox console? Lawyer asks, no, Wright says. And further says, if Microsoft didn't take its 30% commission from developers, Microsoft couldn't make money off the Xbox at all. Now, again, you're leaping ahead. You're making future projections that you really can't predict. If you increase the cost to the Xbox, do you change the cut in the development store? Could you still make money off the ecosystem? Nobody knows these answers, and they probably should have demurred or objected to an answer like this, which says, hey, you don't know what happens if 30% goes away in this model, but it doesn't appear that that was done. Apple then starts to attack this kind of line of thought. Is there any plan to change the commission on Xbox? No. Does the Xbox allow competing stores? This entire fight is about Epic wanting to run its own store slash get rid of the in-app purchasing process payment to Apple, that 30% as part of its own app store. No. Has it let developers distribute games directly? No. And why is Microsoft treating the platforms differently? The platforms being Windows and Xbox, to which the response is Xbox market is much smaller than Windows and the Xbox store is this curated, custom-built hardware software experience. The Windows world is an open platform with lots of scenarios that people use these devices for. And here is where the rubber hits the road. This is the fight that people have had in my comments now for nine plus months that I've had on social media that when discussing it as a matter of law always runs the wrong way with people assuming that I'm on Apple's side here. I don't like a lot of the things that Apple does with its own infrastructure, with its own iOS, with what it does with putting ads in the settings menu. I agree with Tim Sweeney on a lot of his complaints about the ecosystem. But the fundamental question here is, will it affect everybody? Is this reaching for a major shift in all the technology? And when you hear this description for the Xbox, the Xbox store is a curated, custom-built hardware software experience. Explain to me how the law separates that from the iOS. Yes, I know you want to say the phone or the iPad is more of a general computing device, but the definition here is that it's a curated, custom-built hardware software experience. There's no question that the iOS was hardware software built to work on specific hardware with specific software, that iOS isn't available to do other things, and that although you want to say the Windows world is different in an open platform, that's great. That's the difference between an iPhone and a Mac. You're saying that you have a fundamentally similar model, only Epic isn't suing you because, hey, they don't want to sue console manufacturers just yet. They make a little bit too much money from them. And so Apple has a good case here. You don't allow different stores onto the Xbox. You don't allow developers to distribute directly. The law, as the the judge has properly said in the motion stage, doesn't really distinguish between whether or not you're making a profit off of your hardware or not. That's your business model. That's up to you. In terms of the contracts and restraint of trade, that's a different question. Apple, though, potentially goes a little bit too far. This line of questioning continued in a different direction, talking about xCloud, which I have long said is 
a major factor that could have made Microsoft a better plaintiff in this case than Epic is. If you're not familiar with the stories here, then xCloud is Xbox and Microsoft's way of streaming game services through their Xbox ecosystem and allowing you to play them on other devices. Most specifically right now, Android, they've brought it through the web service portion of the iPhone. I think it's currently under testing. It might be available to the public at this point in time, but it allows this and it's very, very cool. If you're a member of, I think it's Game Pass, it might be Ultimate Game Pass, to play these games on other devices. And Xbox and Microsoft got into a big fight with Apple about the fact that Apple basically said, we're not going to allow this app unless you do certain things that allow us to individually review every game that you can access through this app. To which Microsoft responded, hey, look, you don't do that for Netflix. Netflix has television shows and movies and you have the one Netflix app and you just go away from there. And Apple had a big problem with it. And if you're thinking that Apple is a monopolist and a bad actor in this environment, you could say, well, they're trying to defend one of their most profitable centers on their phone, which is gaming, against the possibility of a whole bunch of games that you already own being playable on your phone when you could otherwise be spending money on Crash Bandicoot on the run or some other app that Apple has available on the iOS. This, as reported by Addie Robertson here, was addressed by Lori by saying they received direction to go and follow the Netflix model or the Audible model, which would have been great for us. Then we heard shortly that that was not the right model for us. They were told to go with a game cloud model where every single game had to be downloaded individually onto the phone as this was a major issue in Apple's policy. Epic Lawyer brings up the fact that Apple has interactive stories in it already. Black Mirror Bandersnatch, I believe this is a reference to Netflix. Now that is interactive fiction different from Games Crowd gets to fight too says Ms. Robertson. And yes, there is some truth to that. There are a small handful of Netflix applications that allow you to, at occasions during their progress, select left or right, select simple choices in order to advance them. Now, is that a video game? I don't know. I tend to think it's not. But more importantly, from the Apple side of things, if we want to defend Apple on this, it is clearly distinct from an actual full-scale inputs needed video game service that Microsoft wants to run. Now, I have personally said, as I just said as part of this video, that I think Microsoft has a stronger argument here than Epic does, that this starts to look a lot like anti-competitive behavior if Apple can't justify it for some reason. Now, some folks have come into my comments on my social media and said, look, you can input things into a video game, potentially dangerous things about your name or your location or other things, that you don't do in Netflix, that you're just playing a movie, even if you're selecting left or right, and that perhaps Apple could make a case about that. And perhaps they could. Distinguishing between these two use cases will likely be important to Apple as this case proceeds. But I have to tell you, I think it's a pretty weak argument. There isn't a great reason that I can see that Apple keeps these things off. And it's a pretty compelling argument that Apple keeps these things off deliberately to ensure that it can continue to maximize profits selling its own products and own access through the App Store rather than allowing what amounts to free access through these various other storefront-like things on the App Store. So I think it will be interesting to watch as this proceeds, uh, but certainly I don't think Bandersnatch is the compelling part of this discussion. We're online again, out of sealed session. Back to questioning for Lori Wright of Xbox. Apple's lawyer is asserting that she's here for Epic and wants Epic to win. Wright hedges. This is the second cross-examination where Apple has made a point of trying to establish that a third-party witness is on Epic's side. Lawyer cites a deposition saying Microsoft earns annual net revenue of around six to $700 million from Epic. Wright says the number was based on confusion. 
Microsoft has a financial incentive to keep Epic happy, right? Ms. Right? We try and keep all of our developers happy. Yes. You're aware Epic is a vocal critic of Apple's App Store, right? It was certainly followed in the media alongside Microsoft's efforts to get xCloud on iOS, Wright says. These happened at the same time. As a matter of fact, you can see this as part of this very series in virtual legality. But here's where things get a little bit off the rails. You can probably tell even from just this line of questioning that Apple is just trying to fight against a relatively antagonistic, not quite hostile witness here and taking attack to say, you want Epic to win, which I think is pretty self-evident with the way that Microsoft has actually behaved in the past few months, basically signing on to certain precepts that the Coalition for App Fairness has put out there and saying that they will follow that on the Windows side of things, dropping their cut on the Windows side of things from 30% to 12%, putting out documents that suggested that they might've been considering doing that on the console side, bolstering Epic's argument that 30% is too high and that you can survive as a store on 12%. But of course, you don't have to answer this question if you're Lori Wright of Xbox. No, we're here to help give the truth to the court and answer the questions that are posed to us. It's not up to us who wins, etc., etc. And Apple winds up pushing a little hard. And this is another aspect of this that I wanted to talk about. Apple's lawyer is not necessarily in the wrong here talking about whether documents were delivered properly from Microsoft, whether they could impugn Ms. Wright's testimony, etc., but is coming off as being pretty snide, asking next if Wright is aware the App Store had guidelines. I think there's another reference here. If you just stick to my questions, you'll have a chance to say your thing again. In any case, we're now back to comparing the lockdownness of iOS versus the Xbox, which doesn't allow competing streaming services, lawyer notes. So this is a problem for lawyers. If you've ever talked to one, you might know this, just in social circumstances. But lawyers, especially in my experience, smart ones, really smart ones that do their homework, do their research, know they're right about something, can easily get caught in this trap. I see it in contract negotiations. Again, I'm not a litigator, so I'm not seeing it in trial scenarios very often. But in contract negotiations, especially you get into a position where the lawyer is just so adamant that they're right that they lose the third party. They lose whether that's an arbitrator or a mediator, even their own client, if not the client on the opposite side of the table, because they get snide, they get snotty, they get cocky, egotistical, narcissistic, however you want to describe it. And if you do that in a court case, you can lose the ear of the only person that matters, which is the judge. So, you know, if you're a law student or if you're an early stage lawyer, one of the things I always recommend is Focus directly on what you are trying to achieve. We talk about this with respect to corporate message. Focus on who your audience is and how to best convey your message. I've already said as part of this video that talking about this, talking about lockdownness on iOS, hey, you run Xbox, you work at Microsoft, you don't let anybody just open a store on your Xbox platform, do you? You take your 30% cut, which is the same thing my client does, don't you? You don't allow anybody to do anything willy-nilly. You don't have to accept everybody into your ecosystem. You run a walled garden because that's a model that works for you, don't you? Those are good points. They are easy to express to the court. Obviously, you've got a witness that doesn't love answering this line of questions, and that can create a little bit of friction. But when you start getting commentary that you're acting snide or egotistical or aggressive, you can actually lose your point when you otherwise have a good one to make. This right here, if I'm understanding it correctly from the Apple lawyer, if you just stick to my questions, you'll have a chance to say your thing again, speaks to me of a lawyer that is getting frustrated, 
that you've got a well-coached witness that doesn't really want to answer the questions in the direction you want them to be answered that maybe you think is acting a little untruthfully. I mentioned that at the top of this video, that they're not really playing fair with what Microsoft thinks of as the Xbox or has historically represented themselves as thinking about the Xbox. And you get a little frustrated. But when a line like this comes out, which is basically saying, look, we know you have your talking points. If you just stick to my questions, you'll have a chance to get back to them, to say your thing again, is not helping your client in all likelihood. I wasn't there. I'm not listening to this call live. But this is the kind of thing that I see and I go, ooh, right. A lot of lawyers operate on this kind of far end of the potential asshole spectrum, and maybe it works for them. But in general, this sounds to me like a well-coached executive of a company that is a third party to the litigation, not falling for certain attorney-level traps. Maybe she's been deposed a number of times. Maybe she's been in trial a number of times before, and the lawyer getting frustrated, which isn't really what you want to see if you're on the Apple side of things. So overall, we're getting into a point today where Epic isn't doing too badly. This is Epic's portion of the case, of course, and they're trying to present as strongly as possible to the court why it is that they should win. But overall, they're doing all right with Ms. Wright and Microsoft. Wright's now being asked whether Apple's web team accepted a wish list of issues with xCloud on Safari from Microsoft. Yes, but we would have needed none of that if we just built a native app for the App Store. And here's again where you get these kinds of references, right? We're not in the room, so we have to kind of speculate and understand what is being delivered to us from these live tweeters. And again, I thank them for their efforts. But you can sense that hostility, right? You've got Apple asking, look, didn't Apple help you get your xCloud up and running on Safari? And she answers, yes, but... And you can say as a lawyer, no, please stick to the answers. I didn't ask you, but I didn't ask you for all this extra color. Did Apple help you get the xCloud running on Safari? And she answers, yes, but we wouldn't have needed it if they would have just let us build a native app, which is fair. But you can see now pretty clearly where Microsoft is coming from. Microsoft has a walled garden of their own. As we've talked about in this series, they have a chance of losing it if Epic wins their case, just like everybody else that is a purveyor of a walled garden has a chance of losing it because Epic's theory of the case focuses on walled gardens themselves potentially being illegal. But as we've also talked about, Microsoft is better positioned than most to take advantage of a free-for-all, of having trillions of dollars and a potential software answer in Game Pass or storefronts that if they opened up all of the walled gardens, Microsoft might just be okay with. So yeah, they want to have more access to the App Store. Yeah, they want to get xCloud in there. Yeah, they want to get Game Pass in various other gardens potentially because that's where their money lives. And if they have to give up their walled garden platform set-top box environment to do so, Microsoft, behind the scenes, might have already decided that that's okay with them. Chances are, when they're game planning what's going to happen in a trial like this one, they've learned to accept either outcome because it's out of their hands and you have to game plan for either. But it's clear just from the presentations that we saw at the motion stage from Microsoft defending Unreal Engine, defending Epic to some extent. We've seen them with the cuts. We've seen them with the Coalition for App Fairness. We see them present Lori Wright here saying things like yes, but as her answers, hedging on whether she's here to help Epic win. All these various kinds of things that Microsoft seems to want an epic victory here. And whether or not that makes sense to you is something that we can absolutely discuss in the comments to this video, whether you think Microsoft should be on that side, whether Sony should have invested $500 million in a company that apparently regularly sent them emails threatening litigation and that might end their walled garden when they're far more invested in it than Microsoft would appear to be. Apple's lawyer asks if the cost of manufacturing a console drops over time until selling it at the original price becomes profitable. 
Wright says the hardware still isn't profitable. Lawyer says if she'd provided the documents he requested, which was the fight earlier, they could have verified it. Console prices often end up dropping as generations get older, so that's not particularly unbelievable. And again, the notion of profitability here is a multi-part question. Your hardware doesn't need to be profitable in and of itself if the sales of video games or Game Pass subscriptions is profitable. You've got razor blades along with a razor. And if you can make enough money on one or the other, you can make enough money to sustain your business model. But right saying, hey, it's never profitable and we didn't actually give you the financial documents to look at that on the Apple side isn't a great answer. So while I think Epic is having a good day, especially with the right testimony here, I don't know that it's a complete killer day because you do have a lot of good kind of attacks from the Apple standpoint. We're back yet again to the fact that Microsoft locks down the Xbox far more than Windows. Apple's lawyer doesn't spell it out, but the clear parallel is it's implying is iOS versus the more open macOS, which Epic says iOS should be more like, which is a long way of saying it's what we've been talking about throughout. Apple's main line of attack of Microsoft, of Xbox, is that this is what you guys do. How is it that we're on trial here? How can you justify what you're doing when we're doing exactly the same thing at the same rates on the same numbers and you are relying on your business model while still saying, well, our operating system is hardware, software compatible, et cetera. And again, I think your mileage may vary on how successful that is, but I do think it's a good line of attack. Apple allows Netflix to do what Netflix does, but it does not allow us to do what Netflix does. And it required making a separate application for every gaming title that has to be individually downloaded and put onto your phone. Right just gave what I clock as the first mention of Apple Arcade, basically the closest thing Apple has to a direct Xbox Store competitor. We don't get a lot of context from this portion of the thread, but it comes back around to what we were talking about earlier, which is that Microsoft, NVIDIA, these streaming solutions that want to use the App Store, and then Apple doesn't have a great framework for rejecting in the way that they have been over the past year or so, is perhaps a stronger argument than the one that's actually being litigated here about opening up the App Store for everybody and cutting out in-app payment processing as an illegal monopolistic tie and all these kinds of very big stretches from Epic. I think if Microsoft brought this case, if NVIDIA brought this case, if one of these parties brought this case without all of the breaches and rigmarole and self-righteous emails to behind the scenes to Xbox saying, wait for these fireworks, etc., you might see a closer case here than what appears to be developing right now. But all that being said, like we've said from the top of this video series, it's impossible to judge an antitrust action. If you haven't gotten the idea already, antitrust law is very much a judgment call. You've got to judge, sure, but we're not talking about crimes or other issues that have you say, okay, you trespassed, you violated this boundary, you carried a gun into that shopping mall, you did these various things that we could say, yep, that happened, it falls under this law, it's a violation, here you have this penalty or this prison time or what have you. This says, is your business model reasonable? And it's up to a judge or in all likelihood, a series of judges to tell you whether or not it is. And neither Apple nor Epic can know sitting right here. Finally, we wrap up with Wright. We're going over to Andrew Grant, engineering fellow at Epic Games, which we're not gonna cover today in this video, except to note that he appears to be talking about whether or not Apple's in-app payment processing API and software functionality is necessary for what Apple is producing. You see why is store kit required on iOS? There's no technical reason. And they appear to be going in a direction from the Epic side of things that's trying to establish that Apple doesn't need to operate its store in the way it does for technical necessity, 
which I don't think has ever really been Apple's claim, although they might have snuck it in in some place and I discounted it. But Epic can establish in all likelihood that Apple doesn't need to run the store that it, the way it does. It doesn't need to combine in-app payment processing the way it does. Uh, and yet it decides to do so because it's allowed to be in charge of its business model. Uh, much like Microsoft and their Xbox store ecosystem is allowed to be in charge of its business model. So that's day three in substance. We're going to have a couple of more witnesses, including a witness, I think the first one uh, from Apple getting up to bat either at the end of today or tomorrow. We will, of course, look at our summary sources as we did before this video to look at anything that we might have missed at the end of day three and continuing on to day four. If you like these summaries, if you like hearing about Epic versus Apple, talking through the legal analysis and all the impacts of these various things that are coming out every day now on this trial, please consider supporting the channel. We couldn't do it without viewers like you. We've got a Patreon, Streamlabs. We've got a store with sweaters, sweatshirts, shirts, and mugs. I don't think we have any sweaters. Maybe we'll make one, a Christmas sweater for virtual legality. And if none of that appeals to you, just subscribing, upvoting, downvoting, ringing bells, commenting, helping YouTube and Google know that we exist is very, very helpful in and of itself. So thank you so much if you watch this on YouTube. And if you instead listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.